So we continue again today in he- Ephesians. I'm going to set Hebrews. I don't know why. Ephesians chapter 4. So turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And again, we'll be looking at verses, we'll read verses 25 through 32 again today, uh, but we'll look at the next section here as we go along, as we've been walking our way through these various commands that uh, Paul has given unto us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And remember here that what Paul is writing, he is writing in relation to what it means to be in Christ what it means to take off the old man with its deceitful desires, and what it means that we have learned Christ. If we have learned Christ, then that has to change how we live, how we speak, how we relate to one another. Right? This is the reality that we have to deal with, that salvation demands something of us. It is true what Paul has written in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, right? That is true. You are saved by grace through faith. But don't forget verse 10 of Ephesians 2, which tells us that we are saved for good works that God has prepared beforehand. We also have to walk worthy of our calling. We have to walk worthy of the life that we have been given in Christ. And so today I want us to continue to see that the Christian life is one of different speech and actions and relating to others. The Christian life is one of different speech and action and relating to others. So we'll read, I'll read for us the whole of our passage, so Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, but we'll focus in today on verses 28 through 30. But Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25, this is God's word. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So last time we began to unpack this passage and uh, some of these specific commands that presented as a result of our having learned Christ, of our having been transformed by the work of God, now we live differently. And so in verse 25, right, we found the command that we no longer lie. And instead, we're to speak the truth to each other. Right? We don't lie, we speak the truth. And then the, and then the next command in verses 26 and 27, 
right? We weren't commanded to be angry. Paul's not commanding us, go and be angry. But he is saying, if you are angry, do not sin in your anger. Be done with it. Quickly deal with it, right? And giving us that kind of time timeline, time frame. Before the sun sets, deal with your anger. Because if you don't, you give opportunity to Satan. You give opportunity to the evil one. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. And now we continue today and we consider more of these community-destroying sins. Because that's kind of broadly what we're talking about here, right? Ephesians 4 opens up with this call to unity, that we be eager to maintain the unity. And part of what we're talking about here in these commands are unity-destroying sins. So we have to also understand that context to it as we come to them today. But let's begin with verse 28 in 1C, honest work. Verse 28 honest work and paul begins and says let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor so don't steal but work and this is kind of interesting uh, because if you've noticed that the rest of the commands are kind of uh, really about um, kind of internal dispositions right how we feel and considerations about our speech what we say and then we kind of have in the midst here this one about stealing it kind of seems out of place it's a little jarring almost uh, because uh, it just seems out of place it doesn't seem to match the other content here so some commentators see that paul gives this command because there was some specific issue within the ephesian church uh, that related to this issue of stealing uh, if that is true, we don't understand the specifics of why Paul gives this command. So that if that is true, we don't know why Paul says this. We don't know what actual issues of stealing are at heart. Um, many suggested ideas of how this could be occurring. Uh, we could look at a slave stealing from his master. That was common enough. Uh, you could look at Philemon verse 18, for instance, about that. Uh, where Paul writes to Onesimus, if Philemon has taken anything from you, charge it to my account. And we can imagine a runaway slave would need to take something with him of his masters because he had nothing of his own. Uh, maybe it's just an issue of there are merchants in the church and they're using false scales in the marketplace, right? They're, they are using uh, weights that don't actually uh, relate to the weight that they say they are. Right, so you go and you buy a pound of coffee, but it's not really a pound of coffee because it's a three-quarter pound weight. So you're really only getting a three-quarter pound bag of coffee, uh, but you're paying for a pound of coffee. Or we might think of it, some of the marketing tricks, which aren't quite false scales, but some of the marketing tricks today, which are, let's make the bag and the box as big as possible, and then you open it up and there's three in there, right? There's three chips or, or there's three cookies, but why is the box so big? make you think you're getting more than you really are right they're not lying to you but maybe they are trying to mislead you or maybe something is happening within in the church for instance that like happened in acts chapter 6 with the feeding of the widows um, maybe there's kind of allegations or issues of some segment of the church not receiving that which they need because others are taking that which they shouldn't 
Uh, and related to this is uh, what we find Paul admonishing the Thessalonian church for in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And you can write down verses 6 through 15, 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15. And there to the Thessalonian church, Paul deals with this issue where the, there were some in the Thessalonian church who weren't working, but instead taking from the church, even though they could work, they were taking from the church uh, and kind of being idle, being busybodies. And part of that may have been because they were under the mistaken notion that Christ was coming so soon that they shouldn't have to do anything. So maybe it's these kinds of issues. Uh, other commentators suggest that perhaps the reason Paul deals with this issue of stealing is just because it's a traditional topic. Uh, when you are dealing with moral issues, uh, moral teaching, that it's a traditional topic to address stealing in the midst of these moral issues. And we have to ask the question, like, is that possible? But yeah, it's possible that that's really the reason. This is just an issue that's always an issue. Um, either way, God saw fit to admonish the Ephesian church about stealing. And by extension, he saw fit to admonish us about this issue. So we need to consider this for ourselves. What does this mean for us? It's all well and good to think of what it meant for the Ephesian church, but what does it mean for us? Uh, it's important we understand what it meant for the Ephesian church, but what does it mean for us today? The command is for this, for the thief to stop doing, uh, to stop stealing, and to do honest work, or working with his hands the thing which is good. And then we are also given a reason for this. Look at the scriptures here. Verse 28, the end of the verse. So that, right? So why do we do this? So that, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That he may have to give to him that needs. Uh, one commentator states it pithily. The thief is to become a philanthropist. We might see that here. And let's not forget, what is one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not steal. That's Exodus 20.15 in the King Jamesian there for you. Uh, more modern English, right? It's you shall not steal. But what does this mean? What does it mean to steal? What does this look like? Right? In one sense, the answer is quite obvious. Right? Do we know what it means to steal something? Yes, that's quite obvious, right? If we walk into Walmart, take something off the shelf, pretend to scan it at the front register but don't really, and walk out without paying for it, what have we done? We have stolen, right? That's easy. If we break into someone's car and steal a purse, what have we done? We have stolen, right? So, so right, real obvious things here. But there's also more subtle ways that we can steal. For instance, here's a, a question for you. Is it stealing to charge up your credit card with no intentions to pay it off? Is that stealing? Or how about when we promise to pay someone a certain wage, but then we don't give them their full wage because of, you know, oh, well, you didn't do this exactly the way that I didn't tell you to do, but, you know, I expected you to do it that way, and you didn't, you know, I'm taking that from your wage. 
Indeed, as we begin to unpack what stealing is, we can understand it better by some of the objections we may give about being called a thief. For instance, so these are ways that we may justify ourselves for taking someone else's property. You may say, well, that person won't miss that little thing that I took. He already has so much, right? What's this little thing? And doesn't that sound like something, for instance, a servant might say of his master? He has so much. What's this little thing? Or to bring it more into our time, an employee might say of their employer, he already has so much. What's this little thing? Or you may say, that mega corporation has billions and billions and billions of dollars of profit. They're not going to miss a $5 item. They're not going to die, right? The, the, the store is not going to go belly up because I take an extra carrot here or there because I take this because I take a book every once in a while, because I take a DVD every once in a while. I could go really old-timey because I steal an A-track here or there. And indeed, in our minds, we might conjure up uh, images of Robin Hood, right? He steals from the rich and gives to the poor. And isn't that a good thing? John Calvin on this passage he writes, it's as if Paul had said, no condition, however hard or disagreeable, can entitle any man to do injury to another, or even to refrain from contributing to the necessities of his brethren. So is that correct? Is Calvin correct in saying there is no condition that justifies you from taking, right, from doing injury to your brother. Well, what does the scripture say? What's the commandment? You shall not steal. God did not qualify that commandment, right? He said, he did not say, you shall not steal unless. He did not say, well, if this is the circumstance you're in, you have the right to steal. Otherwise, don't steal. What's the commandment? Simple. You shall not steal. God does not give caveats to his command. He doesn't say, unless you, you, you know, if you really, really want it and you can't afford it, it's okay, go ahead, steal it. Or if you really, really think you need it and you don't have the money for it, it's okay, steal it. God does not lessen this command in the least. And indeed, we should remember what Paul writes to the church in Rome in Romans 13, verse 9. Romans 13, verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let's take that objection that we've given of, well, he has so much, he's not going to miss that a little bit. If we were in the position of the master, if we were in the position of the employer, if we were in the position who had much, 
would we enjoy and invite others taking from us, stealing from us? If you are the master, would you invite your servants to steal from you? If you are the owner of the grocery store, would you welcome thieves to come in and to take without reservation? And we know the answer to that, right? No. So what does love demand? Not stealing, but sharing. So what do we do instead of stealing? Well, Paul tells us here, right? He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And here I'll just pause a moment and say, some of the extent that I that thieves go to to steal information, to steal credit card numbers, to do all these things to circumvent the, the owners of the product from being stolen from, if they had just applied themselves to honest work, what could they accomplish? Right? So Paul tells us to labor with our own hands, to work, to work hard, to do good. And instead of using our hands for evil, we are to use them for good. It's, again, similar to what he writes to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3. And this is verses 10 to 13. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Right, so there's idleness in the Thessalonian church into which Paul says, work. If you're able to work, work. Work quietly. Earn your own living and be ready to do good. Isn't that what Paul says here, right? Work. Don't steal. Work. Labor. Do honest work so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Right? That's part of the reality here for the Ephesians. Is he saying, don't take, but give. And what he is saying to us today is the same. right? Don't take, but give. So the two dimensions of this that, that we need to think of in terms of, right, if this is about loving our neighbor as ourselves, the first is that, it, here's the negative aspect of it, right? That to steal is to sin. Right? Stealing is a sin. Stealing is breaking God's commands. It is a violation of God's commands. It is sin. It injures the person we steal from, even if we don't see that. Right? Even if we're not there to bear witness to it, it injures them. And then the positive aspect of this is right. work enables us to help others. Work enables us to help those who cannot work. For whatever reason, right? The traditional, uh, the traditional aspects of that in the scriptures is widows and orphans. Right? They can't work; they don't have the ability. Uh, they may not have the ability because culture does not empower them with the ability to work, and so we help them. So heed this admonishment. Heed this warning, brothers and sisters. 
and consider your own life. Do you steal from your employer? Are you a thief? Well, repent of your sin and work hard. Work not, not unto your master, but as the scripture says, work as unto the Lord. Work as unto the Lord. Work to help others who cannot work themselves or whose work leaves them still in desperate need. There are those who need to hear that command to work. We were created to work. Work is not a byproduct of the fall into sin. Work is what God gave us before sin ever entered into the world. We are created for work. And there are those of us that need to hear the command here to share, to give to those in need, to be generous, to understand that God has blessed us that we may help others and do good works. So if we have learned Christ, if we have put on the new man, we cannot ignore these words of Paul that they're irrelevant for us. So I don't care where you are in your life situation. This is God's command for you, Christian. So whether you think you're a thief or not, this is God's command for you to understand what it means for you in your life and put it into action. Okay? So let's follow Christ in loving others, even those who don't deserve it. Because guess what? Neither do we. So let's, we've, we consider honest work. Now let's consider edifying talk in verse 29. Edifying talk. Verse 29. And Paul writes, Again, we're back to this issue of speech. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Right? So the next command for us to consider in the context of the community of Christ is the cessation of corrupting communication. Or, depending on your translation, it might say something like unwholesome speech or an unwholesome talk. So what kind of speech is corrupting or unwholesome? What does it mean to speak corruption? Well, in context here, right, it's the kind of talk that does not build up because Paul gives us the positive aspect of that, right? Only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So unwholesome or corrupting speech is opposite that, uh, right? It's obscenities, it's cussing, it's abusive language, it's gossip. All these things are comprised in this issue of unwholesome speech. Later in Ephesians, Paul will write in Ephesians 5 verse 4, chapter 5 verse 4, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So right there, Paul helps us understand what unwholesome talk is. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Things that are out of place and do not fit the occasion. There are things that are corrosive, destructive to the community. This is the kind of speech that hurts others. We might call it worldly talk. This is how the world talks, right? Uh, this, it reminds me of this, this time. I went to Walmart, and don't ask me 
why or what possessed this man to do so. But he was at the front door and he, as I was approaching him, he's like, you know what the best thing about summer is? All the girls in their little shorts. It's like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, what in the world possessed you to say that to a stranger? I don't know you. What, what is this? And why would that be your comment? And by the way, that's not the first time I've had a dirty old man say something repulsive about women to me before in public to, to me who is a stranger. And if that's what typifies what they talk to strangers, I hate to hear how they talk to people that they know and are close to. It's, it's repulsive. It's repugnant. Shame on him. Uh, more than that, God will judge him. And God will judge us for unwholesome talk, destructive talk. Why would you, Christian, use the same kind of destructive, corrosive language that those outside of Christ would use? Your calling in Christ is to put off the old man with, with his deceitful desires. We are called to excise from our vocabulary such language that corrupts, breaks down, rather than builds up. Brothers and sisters, let me say this more plainly. Some of the things that pass through your lips shouldn't. Let me just say it plainly and blunt. And it's a matter for all of us to repent so what kind of speech should we have instead? That's, that's the command. Don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So right, that which edifies, that's which builds up, that's what we should be speaking. We should speak that which is grace-filled. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul writes in Colossians 4, 6, Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Right? And, and we could go back to Ephesians 5, 4, which I mentioned earlier about, right? Not filthiness, not, not crude joking, but what? But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Or we could look to what Paul says in Romans 12.10. Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So let's tie all these threads together. What does it mean to be gracious in our speaking? How do we give grace to those uh, we speak to? Well, we can give encouraging words, right? We can speak with encouragement, words that give strength, words that give courage, right? That's what it means to encourage. We give courage to someone else. How do we do that? For instance, we can say, listen, God is sovereign and good. He knows everything that is transpiring in your life in this moment. And though the circumstances may not be ideal, he has promised to be with you brother. He has promised to be with you, sister, and to never forsake you. So know that whatever comes next, whatever trial or tribulation or blessing, God is present with you. 
Wouldn't it be nice sometimes if we had someone tell us that? And by the way, I'm telling you that. If you are in Christ, God is sovereign, and he knows what is transpiring in your life, and he is with you. And he's never going to forsake you. And he's using these things to conform you to the image of his son. He's not abandoned you. Right? We can do out, outdo one another in showing honor. Right? We praise God in the grace we see in our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We say something like, brother, I can see God's work in you. Sister, I thank God that he is conforming you to the image of Christ. It's evident. Or how about Thanksgiving, right? How do we let Thanksgiving be the measure of our speech? I say this to myself as much as to you. Instead of being the one who points out the problem first, be thankful first. Instead of saying, you know, lunch was really good, except for, you know, lunch, lunch could have been better. I know I've, my wife has helped me grow in this too. It's easy to be critical, but let's be thankful. And by the way, I'm not saying let's lie. I'm not saying that, but let's be thankful. Lunch may be burned, charred bread, maybe a charcoal briquette. So we're not going to say, thank you, this is such a lovely meal. But maybe we can at least say thank you for trying, right? We'd be thankful. Let's thank, thank others often. Let's say thank you. When we're at the cash register checking out, let's say thank you. When our waitress is helping us, let's say thank you. Thank your spouse when they make you dinner. Thank your brother for helping you even if you had to bug him to do it. Instead of the destructive, corrosive speech of the world, we should speak as Christ did. We should take up words of grace. So again, how do we do this? I want to give you an easy filter to, to, to decide, is this something I should speak or not? Is this something that's going to give grace or not? And it's actually, Paul gives it to us in Philippians uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Philippians 4, 8. It might be familiar to you. It's in regards to our thoughts, but it can easily apply to our speech. So Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I'd amend Paul's word there for our context here in Ephesians in this way. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, speak about these things. Right? True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellence, praiseworthy. If we filtered what we thought and what we speak through this, 
And by the way, if indeed we filter what we take in, because by the way, what we take in affects what we give out. And to use it this way, is right, this is a common phrase, garbage in, garbage out. If all we are taking in is worldly talk through the week, it should be no surprise that we speak worldly speak. Right? If all we're taking in is social media, television, movies, music, that is filthiness, crude joking, things that are corrosive and destructive, it should be no surprise when that's what comes out of our lips. So may that also be a warning to you. Think about these things. Think about the things of Christ. Take in Christ. If we took in more of Christ, there'd be a greater air of Christ-likeness about us. And by the way, in this, I'm not talking about priggishness or self-righteousness. Because if our thought life are these things that Paul gives us in Philippians 4.8, if this is the measure of our thought life, guess what? We would be a lot more humble than we are. We would have less pride in ourselves because we would know what is true about ourselves and know we have no reason to boast. And I'm not saying that the only content of our speech should be Biblical verse. So I'm not saying that we go walk around uh, like a walking King James Bible or any other modern version, right? That all we do is parrot things out of the scriptures in the, in the form that the scriptures give them to us. I'm not saying that either. But the things that we do talk about should be true and profitable. Especially within the body, body of Christ. So listen, especially within the body of Christ, within the church, we have to get past the point of small talk and into substantive issues. Things that cause us to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. But we may ask again, does our speech really matter? That it, am I just blowing this out of proportion here? Does our speech really matter? Yes. Because what Paul is admonishing about here is sin. Right? He's, what he's warning us from is sin. Corrupting talk is sinful talk. Right? What does sin earn? Does it earn God's praise? Does God nudge us in the side and say, wow, you really tell that crude joke and that was a good one. That, that was really funny. Good job. Note earns judgment. The wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. Second death, right? And what can save us from such sin? Christ alone. You want to know what it means to give grace to those who hear? what it means to speak as fits the occasion, look at the example of Christ. Christ is more than our example. Thank God for that. Right? He's more than just a good teacher. He's Lord. He's Savior. But he is also a good example for us. 
Look to his speech. Look to what he spoke. He, his speech was always perfectly seasoned. Never too salty. Never too saltless. The words that he gives are words of life and peace. So at this point, if you're running through the things that you have said in the past days, past weeks, and you're ashamed by that, repent. Go to God and say, God, forgive me, for I have sinned in my speech against you. They don't measure up to what you have called me to, and I ask your forgiveness. And there is grace enough in Christ. The blood of Christ covers all our sins including the ones we speak. By the way, I'll just pause here for a moment and say before we get on to our next uh, section here that we could have gone and spent a lot of time in James chapter 3 because it has a lot to say about our speech. So some homework for you as you go. uh, Go read James chapter 3 and see what it says to you about the content of our speech. How can it be that a spring pours forth both fresh water and salt water? The answer is it can't. So how can you, beloved? But let's turn to our last command today and let's consider grieving the Spirit. Grieving the Spirit in verse 30. Grieving the Spirit. God, God, through the Apostle Paul, writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Now, this may be familiar to us. The rest of these verses probably are not as familiar to us as we may be familiar with this one. Paul gives us an imperative here. He says, do not grieve. That's the command. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And again, what spirit are we talking about? Are we talking about our Holy Spirit Are we talking about the Holy Spirit that has been made in us because of Christ's work? No, we're talking about the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, we know this to be the case, right? That we're talking about God's Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, because it's also by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, right? We know this is the Holy Spirit we're talking about, the third person of the Trinity. Remember back earlier in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And the promised Holy Spirit is our down payment, our guarantee that that which God has promised to us in Christ is ours and we will have it. The Holy Spirit indwells believers and is a gift from God. Paul in Romans 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, if indeed we are in Christ. And so when we get this sense of grieving the Holy Spirit, we're talking about a person, not an impersonal force. Right? The Holy Spirit is not an it. And I know it's easy in our language 
to talk about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as an it. He is not an it. He is a person. And what Paul is here telling us is that by our actions, we can bring grief or sorrow to the Spirit of God. Now, in one sense, I'm going to tell you this, that we have to understand that this is a human way of speaking about the Spirit. And I'll emphasize that by saying, asking this question. Can we bring harm or hurt to God? Can we harm God? No. No, we can't. Not even in the littlest bit. And yet, God speaks to us and says there is a sense that we can offend the Spirit of God within us when we commit the kinds of sins that Paul is writing about in this passage. In other words, you believer, you grieve the Holy Spirit when you act in ways that are not in accord with your having been sealed by him for the day of redemption. For instance, Paul writes to the Corinthian church that sexual immorality is not just a sin outside of the body, but within the body. And notice how he writes about how it offends the Holy Spirit. Listen to his reasoning here out of 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Listen to his reasoning. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Right? Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Let me just say, brothers and sisters, that if we add a more present memory to the reality that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, I should think we would not do and say as much as what we do and say. If we understood that the Holy Spirit indwells us, and that we are to be a place of worship, right? That's part of what a temple does. That if we understood that we had the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and he was present with us in our sin, I don't think we would commit as much sin as we do. I think we'd be warned off of it. We would understand that the presence of God is not out there, but in here. Right? And if God is holy, because right, of all this, if we understand this, right? if God is holy, what does that mean for him to dwell in the midst of unholiness? We might take to heart what the prophet Isaiah tells us. And maybe this is part of where Paul gets this idea from. Isaiah 63, 10. Isaiah 63, 10. Listen to what the prophet says. 
but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Do you realize, beloved, that sin is a heinous evil in the sight of a holy God and that you cannot hide yourself from the presence of God? And indeed, if you really are in Christ, that the presence of God is within you when you sin. When you sin, God sees and knows it. If you are in Christ, it grieves him. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves him to see those whom he has sealed for redemption acting like they have not been redeemed. Right? Because that's been the whole point of this, this section of Ephesians 4, right? If you, if you have been saved, you have put off the old man and if you put on the new man. The new man who has learned Christ. The new man who has been regenerated and renewed by whom? The Holy Spirit. Who has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're a new man. And if you're a new man, how can you live like an old man? Like the one dead in his trespasses and sins. Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. Romans 8, 9 through 11. You, however, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. To ask like Paul does earlier in Romans, how can we who are dead to sin still live in it? How can we who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit live in unholiness? Do you see the incongruity there? So whether it's unwholesome talk, whether it's stealing, whether it's sinful anger, whether it's lying, or whether it's any of a number of other community-destroying sins, unholy practices, you grieve the Spirit. You grieve God's Spirit. You grieve the one who has indwelt you as a guarantee of your coming redemption. Again, the Christian life is one of different speech and, and action in relating to others. It has to be that way. It's a necessary conclusion of God's work in us concerning salvation. If indeed we have been saved. If you've been saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit, you cannot live the unholy life that you were saved out of. It's an impossibility. It's an impossibility. And I say that even as we struggle with the tension of what it means that we still dwell in these bodies of flesh. And maybe we understand a little better Paul's words in Romans 7 when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of flesh? When I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. 
So part of what that means is what we've unpacked in our verses before us today. You can't steal anymore. Stealing is sin. Stealing brings sorrow to the spirit. Instead, honest work with good, right? Good work with your hands, being ready to help others in their need. That's what you're called to. Being in Christ, having been saved, means that the content of your speech must be transformed. You should no longer sound like the people who are dead in their sins and trespasses and will be cast forever from God's presence. You should not be given over to following in the speech of the evil one. By the way, I'll just say here, we've been watching a lot of Lord of the Rings recently, and I want to say something about the black speech and Sauron and the, his evil language. If you go back and you read through uh, those books or watch those movies, you see that. Right? There's a speech that is not fitting for those who have been redeemed by God. Right? We, ha- we have to understand that. Right? In, in contrast to worldly speech, we're supposed to have gracious speech. Speech that builds up. We might say it as in the book of Hebrews. Speech that stirs one another up to love and to good works. Because as we have considered today, to live in a way that does not comport with Christ is to bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit. It grieves him. Do you realize that? Your sin grieves him. It's offensive. It's sorrowful to him. When you live as though he has done nothing in you and for you. And it should be no surprise that you have no comfort in your life when you have grieved the comforter. And he withdraws his presence from you. Though it's not the same as what happened in the days of King David, I am always struck by that line in Psalm 51, right? His psalm of repentance after he repented with his sin of Bathsheba and Uriah. And part of that in verse 11, he he prays to God, God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And why would David pray that? Because he was a firsthand witness to the degradation, to the fall of King Saul. He saw what happened in King Saul when the Holy Spirit was removed from him. And so I think that's part of what motivates David to write that. He's like, I don't want to be him. I don't want that. Not just because of what happens, by the way. Right? I, I don't think that's David's first and foremost consideration. of Like, oh no, I'm going to lose the kingdom. I don't think that's it. I think his first and foremost consideration is I lose contact. I lose communion with my God. I don't want that. I don't want to lose the presence of God. I don't want to lose the comfort of God. I don't want to lose the help of God. Again, if it's never so for the Christian. God will never take his Holy Spirit from you if you're in Christ. I don't want to Uh, give you the the idea of that but if you are in christ uh, you are in christ and the holy spirit is the down payment of 
your promised inheritance, that is true and that will always be true if you are in Christ. But understand this too, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit will never recede in power in your life. That you won't feel uncomforted. And perhaps some of the ever-present weakness and lack of spiritual gifts in the Western church in particular, maybe even in our own lives, we might say, is maybe the reason for that is because we have so grieved the Spirit. Why should we expect Him to do anything? We have offended Him. Should our spirits be comforted by the Spirit of comfort when we cause Him such sorrow? I don't think so. Neither should you. So for some of you, this may be a wake-up call. You need to go to God and you need to repent of your sin. You need to repent of the ways in which you have spoken corruptly. You need to repent of the stealing that you have done and been a part of. And if you confess Christ as your Savior, but none of this bothers you, it doesn't bother you that you grieve and offend the Holy Spirit when you sin, You really need to ask yourself if you understand what faith entails. To go on living, grieving the Spirit without it grieving you is to perhaps suggest that you don't have the Spirit at all. One reason is that sin should bother you. If you are in Christ, you have a conscience. If you're in Christ, you have a conscience. So sin should bother you. The second reason, another reason, is that God is not going to give you rest. He promises that he disciplines those who are his. If you are a child of God, you will receive the chastisement of God for your sins. He calls his children back to himself with trials and tribulations aplenty, if that is what it takes. If you don't find that in your life, if sin doesn't bother you, if grieving the Spirit doesn't bother you, you need to search yourself. You need to examine yourself. And if none of this matters to you, if you're going to continue talking whatever poison you wish, because who cares, then understand God will judge you. You may well find out the meaning of Isaiah when he wrote, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. For God to be your enemy is most terrifying. He's all powerful. He can undo you. And for all who live in a rebellion against him and his ways, he will cast them forever out of his presence of grace and steadfast love into the presence of his eternal wrath. Understand that hell is the anger of God continually poured out. It is most righteous anger. It is just anger. And if you fail to go to God in faith and seeking Christ, you will have no recourse but to bear the flames, bear the destruction of your body for all eternity. For that is how evil sin is. But Jesus was a wrath bearer. He bore God's anger for sin. Not for his sin. He didn't commit sin. But for the sins 
of his people. He stood in the place of sinful man. And as many as do trust in him, who believe in him in his work, they will find that their own sins have been paid for in full in Christ. And so if you trust in Christ, if you repent of your sins, if you turn from them and turn to God, you will be saved. And if you're saved, you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit. The world around you may not change. Your circumstances, your immediate circumstances may not change much. But you will find that within your very soul, everything is different. You will love different things. Right? Your affections, delights, thoughts, speech, actions will change. God does that work in you. Right? He gives us his spirit that we may put to death the deeds of the body. Praise God for that, right? So trust in God's only begotten son this day. And then live like Christ, right? Lay your life down. Take up your cross and follow him. You won't regret a single day spent in the presence of our holy God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your word says that if a man does not stumble in what he speaks, he is a perfect man. And, Father, we confess we are not perfect. Father, we confess that we have said more evil things in our days, it seems, than good things. Father, forgive us for the evils that have been pressed upon us, uh, the evils that we have spoken and the evils that we have committed the things that we have taken unjustly. Father, forgive us for grieving your spirit. For those of us in Christ, forgive us, Lord God, for failing to understand what our sin does. And Lord God, we pray that you would help us with, with clearer understanding, clearer clearer belief, real faith, understand your word, understand what our sin costs, and flee from it. And Father, we confess readily that unless you help us, that unless your spirit is with us, that unless you restrain us with grace, we will commit all kinds of evil. Oh, Father, how weak and needy we are. Lord, help us. And God, we thank you for the help that you do give to us. Father, we thank you for the promises that you give to us in your word, that you have given us everything necessary for life and godliness, that you are working in us that which is good, that you are busy sanctifying us, conforming us to the image of Christ. Oh, Father, we praise you for these good things. And Lord, we pray for those whom we know that are dead in their sins and trespasses, Lord God. We pray for those who are your enemies, those who are at war with you. Oh, Lord, help them to know and to understand the peace that they can have with you in Christ. Father, be merciful and grant your spirit to them 
to open their eyes and behold the truth. O oh, Father, and help us to be bold, bold to speak of Christ in all our ways, bold to give grace. Uh, Father, in, in every, every word that we speak, bold to build up. Father, we thank you. We praise you in all these things, for you are worthy of all our praise and thanksgiving. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.